The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And I must say that uh, the gold share market has uh, gotten hit as hard as anything I've seen uh, in my 30-plus years of experience in this business. But I also think that, um, as they say, the, it's darkest before the dawn. And I believe that we may be uh, getting near uh, the bottom of this thing. And if we are, I think now is going to be a fantastic buying opportunity. I'll be talking more about that later in the show. I'm also um, in partnership with my friend Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And um, Chen's newsletter is available only through the first 10 business days of each quarter. So if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, you do need to put your name on the waiting list. Uh, go to miningstocks.com and sign up there. And then uh, during the first 10 days of the new year, uh, you may be able to become a subscriber to Chen's newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? My newsletter is available uh, all the time at uh, miningstocks.com. You can also call our office during the regular business hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. The best place to go to follow everything I do is J. Taylor Media. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com. Uh, this Radio show can be accessed through that, um, indirectly through that site, and also uh, everything else, my newsletter, everything else that I do, essentially. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is jtaylormedia, J-A-Y Taylor Media. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver, Columbus Gold, and Golden Arrow Resources. I uh, would like to suggest that you, if you enjoy this show, you might also want to listen to my friend Al Corlin's show. Uh, it's the kereport.com, kereport.com. Uh, I am from time to time on Al's show. In fact, I was uh, one of a member of, of uh, a panel that was on last weekend. And so if you want to listen to that, I think uh, a lot of very interesting ideas uh, on there. And uh, it's a very popular show, The KE. It's kereport.com. Also would like to encourage you to keep your questions and comments, criticisms and praises coming to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Well, is this bear market over in gold? That's certainly one question that's on the minds of many, many people. Uh, there, I think there's some reason to believe uh, that, uh, it, that we may be, have bottomed, that we may be in the process of bottoming. And uh, one individual that I know who manages money is uh, looking at the GOFO rate, that is the forward rate for gold, 
And he points out that the market is now in backwardation again. Uh, that is, uh, prices uh, at the longer end in the futures markets are lower than in the near end. This is indicative many times of a squeeze in the physical supply of gold. And uh, this, of course, is one of the issues that uh, that I feel very strongly about is really causing the quoted gold price to be lower than it should be. In fact, uh, recently when I was on uh, a panel discussion out in San Francisco, uh, the, an analyst from Kitco was making the point that, in fact, the Indian people are paying on the black market are paying $300 more than the quoted price in New York. Well, there is uh, allegations, and I think allegations with some reason to believe they're true, that the big bullion banks hammer away at the market on both sides of the market. They basically front-run the market uh, for their own profit, and they manage to whip people in and out of the markets uh, in a way that benefits and profits them. This, uh, from a larger perspective, may also benefit the policymakers uh, and the big bankers and the Federal Reserve to try to con people into staying in paper instruments rather than in gold. Uh, if everybody lost confidence in the dollar and went to gold, the game would be over for the Federal Reserve. So there is some reason to think that um, the powers that be uh, the powers behind the throne are certainly interested in if they're not orchestrating uh, this kind of price manipulation. Certainly, I think the gold antitrust action folks have made a case, very, very strong case, for the manipulation of the gold markets. And so I would encourage those of you who aren't familiar with them, go to GATA, G-A-T-A dot org, to learn more about it. Uh, again, getting back to this issue of whether or not we are near the end, uh, of this relentless bear market that's lasted two years and has really destroyed, to a great extent, destroyed the junior share market uh, and, and uh, many companies ready to, to call it quits. Uh, is it over? Well, um, uh, uh, this same analyst was suggesting that he sees good support here at $1,200. As you would think, with tax loss selling, now would be the time to push gold lower uh, by the bears, but it's not happening. Uh, meanwhile, physical tightness is developing just under 1250, it seems. Uh, and also noting that uh, the backwardation uh, in many times when the GOFO rate is as it is now, we can look for a turn in the markets. Uh, my good friend Peter Granich, who uh, now publishes on a regular basis um, at moneytalks.net, put out something this morning, and I think uh, his views on the gold. He says it feels like the horrific selling or shelling is over and it's time to come out and play again. The first hint was despite what seemed like an endless attack by paper sellers and the most bearish bearishness towards golden years, it has managed to hold its own for a decent period of time. Now we learn that speculators have their most bearish position uh, with respect to gold ever, according to Forbes. Uh, and I believe if we can get through this week, uh, a weekly close, uh, not necessarily this week, but if we can get a weekly close above 1260, Peter says, uh, then we might have, we should have an all clear signal uh, that the worst is over and we're bottoming in the gold market. Well, I can tell you, uh, as uh, as I speak to you right now, let me just refresh this. We're looking at a gold price that is exactly at one thousand two hundred and sixty dollars. That's uh, that's what Peter was saying. We need to close above. Well, we'll see if we'll close above twelve sixty today. Uh, and more importantly, according to Peter, we need to close above twelve sixty at the end of the week. And today is only Tuesday, so we'll see if the demonic forces of the gold bullion banks, uh, those powers behind the throne, that are really raping, robbing, and pillaging the people that create the wealth in our country, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, the people that actually do things for other human beings as opposed to the bankers and the government policymakers that are really wrestling wealth away from the rest of us as parasites. Well, we'll see if they make another run at the gold price, at the gold market. Really, as I look at the charts, as I've said persistently and quite often, whilst I hope we are bottoming at $1,200, there certainly doesn't seem to be any guarantee of that. As a matter of fact, uh, if, I, if you look at the charts, uh, it seems to me the strongest support would be just above uh, $1,000. I'm not saying we're going to go there. I hope we don't. But uh, I'm prepared emotionally for that event. And speaking of being prepared emotionally, as I look at the gold share charts, which is what I'm most involved with, well, you know, I mean, I'm looking at a chart going back 10 years. This is the S&P uh, TSX gold chart. 
and we are at 160 today. That's up a few points. That's up six points, in fact. We had actually gone down to a new low over the last 10 years. Uh, we're at the low where we were immediately following the, uh, the Lehman Brothers debacle and going all the way back to 2004, 2005 when gold was in $400 or so. The gold shares have really been unmercifully murdered, uh, hurt extremely badly. So we'll see. Uh, I'm talking this week about my top 13 exploration stocks. The, um, the good news is that there are companies that are surviving this onslaught of uh, bearishness against gold. And uh, with that happening, uh, there's a lot of, I think, potential big gainers. And I am writing about my top 13 exploration stocks. I uh, wrote about them last week. We'll be writing about them in the coming monthly newsletter. Uh, there are some really great ones out there. Uh, some of them, and I'll just name them, Midas Gold Corp., Paramount Gold and Silver, Pritium Resources, Brazil Resources, Columbus Gold, Klondex Mines, Novo Resources, Premier Gold Mines, um, and Probe Mines, Colorado Resources, Gold Standard, and SGX Resources. Those are some of my favorites. Uh, those are my top 13 picks among the exploration companies. I do prefer the producers, the new producers, the guys that are, have cash flow, a cash flow positive now, uh, and can grow organically, have great exploration potential. Those are my, that's my favorite group. Uh, also project generators as well. Their shares have gotten hit hard. That's true, but they haven't uh, had to dilute their share positions so significantly as many of the others, uh, the exploration companies have. Well, let's get to today's show. Uh, today, uh, well, I've, I've, uh, I've labeled today's show overcoming gold manipulation and other unfair events. And David Hunt, uh, visits for the first time. And coming back again this week will be Doug Groh of the Tocqueville Fund and Greg Johnson, the CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Also returning today will be Jeff Dice, who was uh, formerly Ron Paul's chief of staff, uh, but who is now the president of the Mises Institute. And Jeff will be with us after we take a break in just a, a couple of minutes here. We'll be going to our first commercial break. And Jeff Dice will be with me to talk about his, uh, his role and what he sees in the future for the Mises Institute. Uh, halfway into the first hour of today's show, uh, Doug Rowe of the Tocqueville Gold Fund will be joining me to talk about the gold mining sector and his views of the future uh, of the sector. Uh, and again, this is a sector that I think has been punished as as, uh, as much as I've seen it in 30-plus years that I've been following this industry. So it could be, I believe it is, and we'll see what Doug has to say, but possibly uh, one of the greatest opportunities that I've seen in my lifetime to buy the junior shares uh, if you believe things will hold together at least to to an extent, uh, gold is money, and uh, I think the markets are are telling us that the demand overseas for gold is extremely strong from China and elsewhere. But you know that today we are going to depart from the usual to a certain extent. The premises upon which this show is based is that uh, only if we face the truth face the truth head on and deal with what is reality as opposed to what we might wish to be true or what we hear on the media, what the media would like us to think is true, only then can we optimize our path through life. And of course, as, as Christians, we would say that applies not only to this life, but the one to come that exists beyond the four dimensions of time and space that we are all, uh, that we are all governed by as long as we are on this face of the earth. But today, uh, we pause for at least a half an hour to depart from our usual all too often gloom and doom talk to talk to David Hunt, who is a man who has faced the reality of going blind in the 1990s, but that has not stopped him from becoming a widely celebrated winemaker, accomplished musician, lyricist, author, successful entrepreneur, investor, pioneer, and smart homes carpenter, recording artist, etc. Really a very inspirational person. I've, I've spoken with David, and I look forward to talking to him some more. Uh, he uh, will be with us at the start of the second hour. So I would say that compared to David's handicap, we gold bugs uh, who are crying in our milk uh, shouldn't be doing so. We should be ashamed uh, because David has overcome uh, the handicap of, of not being able to see to do so well in life. Halfway through the second hour of today's show, I will be talking to Greg Johnson of Prophecy Platinum. You know, it's a company with a world-class platinum group project in the Yukon known as the Wellgreen Deposit. And a couple of weeks back, we had three well-regarded mining analysts on this show, 
who provided a mixed view of that project. My friends John Kaiser, Eric Coffin, and Brent Cook all raised some important hurdles and some important issues uh, that uh, they said need to be leaped over before uh, before this can be a, a real positive uh, story. And Brent Cook uh, suggested that once those issues are cleared, this will be a really good one, the Well Green Project. So well, in any event, we're going to have Greg Johnson return uh, again, and he will be with us at half past uh, the second hour of today's show. We'll ask Greg to, adjust, to address some of the issues that John, Eric, and Brent raised on my show a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I, I think that the, uh, the Wellgreen story is a very exciting one. I own the stock myself. It is a recommendation in my newsletter, but we'll hear what uh, Greg has to say about some of the criticisms raised by my three colleagues and uh, competitors. Well, it is time to go to our first break now, and when we come back, we're going to be with Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have a, a good friend of mine, Jeff Deist, with us. Once again, Jeff's been a, a pretty regular guest on this show, and uh, he is now the president of the Mises Institute. He formerly had uh, been Ron Paul's chief of staff, and uh, earlier than that had worked with Ron Paul uh, in his office and uh, has, uh, has also worked as a, uh, as a tax accountant and lawyer. So Jeff is really in a position to know the kind of games that are played in government with money and how they treat citizens and so forth. So um, uh, I think really a very, very appropriate background for what he's going to do working for the Mises Institute, which is, uh, well, before we get, let me, instead of letting me tell people about the Mises Institute, uh, I want to welcome you. Jeff, thanks again for joining me. Okay, thank you, Jay. Good to have you here again. You know, um, I know about the Mises Institute uh, as one who follows Austrian economics, but maybe for the for the sake of our listeners who may not be that familiar with the Mises Institute, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about the organization and its purpose? Sure. Mises is a educational and research organization. We are dedicated to promoting and, and teaching folks about the tenets and principles of Austrian economics, first and foremost, but also some of its corollaries, uh, liberty, peace, would be the two big ones. Uh, we're very much a, uh, a, a, not a think tank or a public policy shop. In other words, we're interested more in the fundamentals of the Austrian school, uh, the fundamentals of a classical society, and, and the fundamentals of peace. Uh, much more than we are sort of the ephemeral nature of, of day-to-day current events uh, or, or, you know, what's going on in the world. Now, certainly there are 
lessons that can be learned and, and parallels that can be drawn between the Austrian message and what's happening. But uh, our role and our mission is, is perhaps very different than what some of your listeners might think of when they think of a, a free market or uh, pro-liberty nonprofit organization. Okay, so it's, it is an educational institution, though, isn't it? I mean, it's to teach people Austrian economics. Uh, that's the main, the main purpose and, and peace, which comes with free market economics, I believe. Well, absolutely. We have a, a handful of in-house scholars, meaning academic PhDs, uh, in economics from the Austrian perspective. We also have many, many dozens of affiliated scholars who are PhD professors at various universities around the United States and around the world. But yes, absolutely, war is part of economics. And of course, Mises himself wrote at length about how socialism leads to war because ultimately the political class runs out of people to plunder within their own borders. And so they start going abroad seeking, you know, new uh, dragons to slay. But, uh, you know, the uh, Austrian message is lasting. I think it's very profound. Obviously, I'm biased, but uh, we have some great scholars here. And I think that uh, it's a message that America especially really needs to hear because I think that the mainstream schools, the neoclassical schools, that even those that might be viewed as friendly to free markets and liberty, I think have fallen down uh, in a couple of very important areas. No doubt about it in my mind. I mean, Mises.org, I should tell our listeners, it's M-I-S-E-S, Mises.org is the place to go to, right, Jeff? That's the website? Absolutely. And there's so many good things there. There's so many, there's so many books and articles and things written there, and we'll maybe uh, ask Jeff about a couple of them, time permitting, uh, today. But, uh, you know, I think of, and I think of Mises, and I think of Ron Paul's work. Uh, he's very strongly associated with the Mises Institution. Uh, I think about monetarists. Uh, I, I think about money. I think about uh, a couple of other schools of economics uh, that... Uh, seem to be at odds with the uh, with the Austrian school. Uh, first of all, maybe you can uh, just maybe you can just tell our listeners if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about what is Austrian economics, and then contrast that with two other major schools: the Monetarist School and the Keynesian uh, School of Economics. Well, of course, Austrian economics is hard to define. It's very broad, and, and it's uh, of course. Uh, interested in studying markets and human action, which was the praxeology term uh, that, that Mises used to describe the Austrian methodology. So, it, it, But one area in which the Austrian school, I think, in modern times is, is exceedingly distinguished from other so-called free market schools on the, is in the area of money and banking. Mm-hmm. The Austrian school resoundingly rejects the idea of central banks that they can be anything but destructive elements in our society. The Austrian school teaches the, the exceedingly important need for sound commodity-backed money rather than government money. And we would reject any sort of inflation targeting or other uh, approaches that some of the free market schools have that, that still believe that there should be a Federal Reserve, for example, in, in, in the United States. Of course, the Austrian, Austrian economists would argue that we shouldn't have a Fed whatsoever, we should eliminate some of our competing currency laws and allow the market to determine over time uh, what, what is appropriate money. In other words, we're not central planners. We're opposed to central planning in the economy. And money is, is a, obviously 50% of every transaction on, on the one side and, and the good or service being transacted on the other. So in, from our perspective, you can't really call yourself a free market adherent uh, if you believe that half of market transactions, the money side, should in effect be controlled by a central planner, which in, in the case of the United States is, is the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and this is one of the things, Jeff, that I found um, you know, most troubling about Milton Friedman, who is uh, very, very good on free market economics and limited government and all of that. Uh, but when it comes to money, he seemed to think that's one thing the government should con- can have a government or the Federal Reserve should have control of. How do you, how do you reconcile that? Why how did Phil, how did Friedman reconcile that difference? I wonder. Well, of course, he was a, a brilliant man and a, a great man in many ways. Uh, I think we as Austrians just disagree with monetarists. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, his his legacy is still very much around in, in yeah. the realm of monetary policy. You look at someone like uh, Mr. Taylor, who's operating at Stanford, uh, 
mm-hmm. I believe it's part of the Hoover Institute. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, very much believes, and I think uh, um, Alan Greenspan very much believes to a certain extent that we can sort of come up with a mathematical model of sorts that allows us to determine how much inflation the Fed should concoct uh, in any given year, and that uh, by doing so, we can, you know, in Greenspan's words, sort of mimic a gold standard. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these are these are competing ideologies in the in the area of monetary policy, and and I think that uh, not only the events of the 2000-2001 tech stock market crash, but also the events of 2008-2009, the housing collapse, the Lehman Brothers collapse, etc. And of course, the the almost unimaginable, almost unfathomable uh, QE uh, Operation Twist that's been occurring since the 08-09 crash. I think all of these uh, events are examples that ultimately will prove the Austrian school to be right when it comes to money. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly it certainly seems to be the case that uh, you know the monetarist economics and uh, just I don't I don't know it just doesn't make sense to me that Milton Friedman why the half half of every transaction is money and the other half is uh, service or goods and that somehow you know we it wasn't that many years ago we were very critical in this country about the Soviet Union deciding how many pairs of shoes should be manufactured every year yet somehow we think that something much more important than that bigger than that monetary system can be monitored. Your former boss Ron Paul is. A, a major supporter of the Mises Institute. Uh, what is what is Ron's role there? Well, Ron is sort of our emeritus uh, uh, representative, and he'll always be a diplomat of sorts for Mises. Uh, he helped uh, Lou and Marty Rockwell found the institute way back in the early 1980s, so he has been evol- involved for that long. And of course, his own decision to run for Congress back in the 70s was in in, in large part prompted by his reading of Austrian economics, and he had the opportunity to go see Mises, Ludwig von Mises speak in Houston, uh, I believe less than a year before he died. And so uh, really the Austrian school and what was happening in the 70s uh, with Nixon closing the gold window and, and inflation, et cetera, you know, it's really the money issue that was the impetus behind Ron ever deciding mm-hmm. to run for Congress. So, so his entire political, and, and I would like to see it more as an educational career, is really mm-hmm. born out of his original interest in Austrian economics, which started when he started reading uh, Austrian scholarship uh, in, I guess, what was his free time as, as a <laughs> medical student at Duke. Yeah. You know, I, I think you in uh, the, the limited exposure I've had to, to Dr. Paul, I think he would also see his... Uh, his time in Congress as an educational uh, event more than anything else. So, now uh, the Mises Institution is about education. It's about it as you were as you were suggesting. Uh, it's about educating the population about the virtues of uh, free market economics. What programs does the institute have? I know there's a tremendous amount of information and, and books and things that are there, and they're very inexpensive sources uh, that people can avail themselves to. I was just on the website looking, but I think the institute also has some uh, some classes that they conduct. Jeff, yes, absolutely. We have an online learning platform called Mises Academy, mm-hmm. uh, which, for a very low or nominal cost, uh, people can sign up for our classes, see some really interesting and cutting edge Austrian scholars, people like Tom DiLorenzo, Tom Woods, Walter Block. I mean, really interesting, incredible speakers, incredible minds like David Gordon. And, and they can take a, a four or six or eight week course, um, you know, where there's a live interaction if you watch during the live course online, or you can, you can sort of watch the archive version later. But, uh, we also have an annual event, uh, known as Mises U, Mises University. And it's really probably mm-hmm. the most exciting week of our year because we have generally <clears throat> around 150 most of the young people come here. Uh, many of them are still undergraduates. Some of them are graduate students in econ. And they spend an entire week completely immersed in uh, various Austrian classes taught by some of the same people who teach our Mises Academy. And, and many of them uh, have, over the years, gone out and ultimately become PhDs, become involved in tech companies, become involved in uh, financial companies, or become involved in academia as uh, professors uh, teaching at universities around the world. So we really view that as our incubator of ideas. You know, and we, we like to think of ourselves 
uh, like uh, Stanford or MIT incubates great minds to go out and mm-hmm. create a tech startup. We like to think of ourselves as incubating young minds to go out and uh, really advance the Austrian movement. Well, I can tell you, Jeff, uh, in traveling to places like Vancouver and San Francisco and elsewhere, that it is working. There is, uh, even though the mainstream still shuns the Mises Institute and von Mises and free market economics to a great extent, I run into lots of young people up in Vancouver and Toronto and elsewhere that are very much excited about uh, about the Mises Institute and about what's going on there. You also have an event uh, that I attended last year in which uh, David Stockman and Peter Schiff and various other people, some of the uh, intellectuals that are part of the Mises Institute spoke at. It was a wonderful event uh, called the Mises Circle in New York. Is that something you do every year? And do you do it in other other cities as well as New York, possibly? Yes, indeed we do. The Mises Circle is sort of an event where Mises comes to you. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's generally a one-day event held in a, in a hotel, uh, and, and we normally have... Uh, about four Mises Circles events a year. They're usually in big population centers like New York, Southern California, Chicago, etc. And it just allows folks who might not otherwise come down here to our physical facility in Auburn, Alabama, to get to go spend some time and meet people like Lou Rockwell, meet people like Judge Napolitano, meet people like Ron Paul, meet people like Tom Woods, and, and get to know them live in person, uh, have, enjoy some fellowship. And uh, we, we've really had some fun events, some successful events. And the, Man- the one in Manhattan of course, is is among our most fun simply because of the setting and the, the giant, giant population center. And, and New York, uh, the financial marketplace there has lots of, uh, lots of dedicated Austrians. Yeah, there, there certainly are, although in very much a minority. But uh, one that's living in this area, David Stockman was there, and of course he he duels with the boys, the uh, with the statist at uh, Bloomberg and elsewhere on the, on the, in the major media. But we're very very happy to have David uh, Stockman, seemingly a part of the Mises Institute uh, in a way. Peter Schiff and others, both of those gentlemen, were really warning us uh, that we've got some really difficult times ahead. And you know, Jeff, uh, your old boss. Ron Paul and other Austrians long ago before the dot-com bubble and before the housing uh, bubble were warning us. And, and then after these bubbles burst and there's a lot of pain and suffering and blood in the streets, you hear all these mainstream people saying, well, nobody knew about it. Nobody could have known. Nobody did know. Well, they just completely ignore the fact and they're ignoring just as they ignore right now the warnings of, uh, of the people at the Mises Institute based on the fundamentals of free market economics. And when those markets are disturbed and not allowed to perform, then, then markets don't act efficiently. They don't perform efficiently. What people don't seem to understand, I think the Mises Institute makes the best case for it, is that free markets will optimize, uh, optimize uh, wealth and optimize freedom. And to me, that's what it's all about. Uh, Jeff, we are out of time I want to thank you very much for being with us, and I look forward to talking to you more in the future uh, about what uh, what's going on at the Mises Institute and, and hopefully having some of the scholars appear on my show from time to time. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jeff, uh, once again. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Doug Grove, the Tocqueville Gold Fund, and, you know, we really want to ask Doug, um, are we through this pain yet? And does he see some light at the end of the tunnel? Are there some good stocks to buy out there? And what is the Tocqueville Fund doing now uh, at this point in time? Don't go away. We'll be right back uh, with Doug Rowe. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. 
Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, for a second time, Doug Rowe. Doug is the um, Portfolio Manager and Senior Research Analyst at the Tocqueville Asset Management uh, Fund. Uh, he joined Tocqueville in 2003, where he uh, is a Portfolio Manager and uh, has been there for some time. I had actually uh, worked with Doug uh, in the same institution on a different floor, but we were somewhat, I guess, in the same uh, departments for for a short period of time uh, when Doug worked at ING Bank, uh, and Doug also has spent some time with J.P. Morgan and Merrill Lynch as well. Uh, Doug began his career as a mining and precious metals analyst in 1985 at uh, U.S. Global Investors, and he holds a bachelor's of science degree in geology and uh, geophysics from the University of Wisconsin Madison. Uh, and uh, from the University of Texas at Austin, where he focused on mineral economics. Welcome, Doug. It's really good to have you back again. Well, well thanks, Jay. It's good good to be back. How are you doing today? I, I'm doing better today, Doug. We've got a twenty uh, a twenty dollar rise in the gold price, and that has lifted my spirits just a little bit. That'll put uh, a smile on your face. And it has helped. I'm sure your fund is up a bit today too when you we're, we're uh, when you tally this. everything up. We're enjoying yeah. this. This uh, move today, yes, right. Well, you know, it's uh, no doubt about it. This has been, this has really been one of the most difficult markets that I can remember. How does it stack up in your mind? Is it is it one of the one of the most difficult since you've been at the Tocqueville Fund? I yeah, I would say I, I think uh, what's impressed uh, us is how rapid um, things have unwound. In, in a regard, there's been a correction in the gold uh, mining sector over the last two years, but. Yeah, you know, if we go back to the beginning of the year, um, gold prices actually started out pretty well, and I think a lot of mining companies anticipated a, somewhat of a challenging year, but um, nothing unusual for the mining industry. And you know, when the gold price corrected by 200 or so dollars in April, that was a real alarm clock wake-up call for the mining industry. Mm-hmm. And you saw them respond by cutting back on exploration and cutting back on some of their ancillary type of uh, expenses. Uh, they trim back some of their uh, capital uh, budgets, etc. But really, I think it was um, the late June pullback, uh, the mid-June pullback, that really was the second wake-up call for the industry, and that really changed everything. I think, um, you know, clearly at that point, the market realized that, hey, the Fed at some point is going to taper and that can't be good for um, interest rates. They can't be good for the economy. And I think a lot of investors got very nervous about gold, uh, and they sold that off. And what you saw as a response in the mining industry was that um, mining companies not only changed their, their budgets, but they changed their mine plans. And mm-hmm. we saw a significant shift uh, since the middle of the year in the mining sector. I don't know if we're... Um, through it entirely, I think we have to get through year-end first. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly we're on, on to a different part of the cycle than we were two years ago. You know, it's, uh, it is it is very, very difficult. There's no question about that. However you want to measure it, if it's the most difficult or not. I've had some of the people on my show uh, that have been around this industry for as long as I, and that's a long time. And I, I think it's as bad as anything I've seen in 30 years. But... Um, but regardless of whatever it is, the, your fund has done pretty well. It's in, in fact, it's uh, I think in three of the last five years, uh, the Tocqueville Fund has um, uh, was the number one fund among seventy-five equity precious metals funds, and that's based on um, weighted risk-adjusted return performance. And how does the Tocqueville Fund uh, go about uh, determining whether a uh, you know whether a stock is a good risk prospect. How, what are you looking at when you pick stocks? And then, 
Uh, how do you uh, do you allocate uh, different different stocks? Do you use some sort of portfolio uh, Markowitz uh, tools, or, or how do you proceed? Sure, sure. Well, you know, um, two different exercises there, uh, Jay. You know, of course, uh, stock picking is one, and then allocation mm-hmm. is another. Um, mm-hmm. As far as stock picking goes, you know, what we're looking for is is quality companies, and you know, that's that's a nice uh, nickel nickel word. As it were, quality. What's quality? <laughs> um, and and I think for us, what what we look at is, uh, you know, fundamentally the asset in the ground is the um, geologic prospect for the company a good geologic prospect, and that can often be uh, simplified in terms of grade and geometry of the ore deposit. But it's not always so simple as that Mm-mm. because metallurgy becomes important in terms of uh, realizing the metal that's being extracted, the cost whether it's the operating cost or capital budget that's required to, to realize an ore deposit, that's certainly part of it. I think um, another element that we put a lot of weight to is, is management's strategy and their direction of the company. How are they guiding the company? What are they trying to do with the assets that um, they've been endowed with? And um, every, everybody's got a little bit of a different approach because they're in different parts of the world and their ore body is, is unique. And so, we try to very much understand what a company has and what they intend to do with it and how they intend to create value from their assets um, that they're, they're working with. And then, and then perhaps as important as, as uh, looking at the asset and management's approach is the financial condition of a company. And I mm-hmm. think right now that's where we're more focused than ever Mm-hmm. In this environment, we're looking at the balance sheet and the capital requirements and the cash flow generating ability of, of the company's assets. And that becomes, that's maybe moved up the scale as far as importance right now because we're in a tough gold price environment. And there isn't capital available like there was two years ago to uh, uh, keep mines operating. And, and we're seeing the outcome of that. Um, Detour Gold has been challenged with um, not only their management uh, situation, but also their balance sheet, and uh, they put a lot of effort into getting that mine up and running in Canada. We think it's a great mine, but um, clearly they're basically down to the five yard line and just just about into the uh, end zone, and yet they're facing some real serious challenges. So, mm. yeah. So well, it, you know, it, the it, thought on stock picking. Yeah, yeah. But but a- as far allocation. as allocation, yeah, as allocation goes. I, our approach is that we want to try to capture value across the entire industry, and we recognize that there's value in exploration and discovery. Uh, there can be significant value creation uh, in that process. Uh, I know you're very well aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the development phase of a company, once they've, they've found a deposit, can be um, certainly wrought with a lot of risk, but our focus on the sector and our dedicated effort um, has provided us with a sense of comfort with regard to how these projects are developed. You know, we know that there's permitting issues or social issues or engineering issues or finance issues where the general market may not fully understand how those issues are resolved and dealt with. Mm -hmm. As dedicated investors in the mining space, we're comfortable maybe relatively early compared to other investors on resolving those various challenges. And as such, we're able to get in in on an investment at uh, perhaps a, a lower valuation than others might be willing to do. And then certainly we'd like to have exposure to those companies that are generating cash flow, um, the larger companies mm-hmm. who have well-established uh, businesses and track records and are, are uh, you know, really making the most of not just their current assets but the opportunity to expand and, and grow uh, their natural resource base too. So we're trying to capture value through the producers and the developers and explorers um, in in a really very thoughtful way where there's a nice balance between uh, the producers maybe uh, accounting for about 45%, 50% of the portfolio, the developers accounting for about 30% of the portfolio, and then explorers. And we do have a, a rather heavy metal exposure right now at about 10%. Yeah, uh, and the explorer is about ten percent. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's our mix in in terms of allocation. Right. 
You know, very interesting, and I'd like to get, uh, time permitting, uh, on to some of the names, some of your top ten uh, sure. holdings at the Tocqueville Fund. But, but, you know, before we before we do that, I just recall it was last July 24th when I spoke to you, Doug, on this show. And at that time, the gold price was at 1583 I just looked it up on the 24th oh, wow. of July. The PM uh-huh. fix was $1,583.25. And you were complaining that we needed higher gold prices to really oh. see... The uh, you know to to really see these share prices start to pick up again. Well, here we are, three hundred dollars lower than that, uh, and uh, so the margins have no doubt been squeezed to a great extent. To what extent do you think the margins have been squeezed because of the lower gold price, and to what extent uh, the higher uh, higher cost? Uh, for example, I know energy costs energy has not gone down as gold prices have gone down. So right, right. Would you have a sense of what the mix would be? Would it be two thirds uh, gold price, one third rising cost, or I don't know? It does, doesn't yeah, matter I, that I much, think, I guess. But I think. Well, I think it's maybe even more. Ninety uh, percent the gold price and ten percent uh-huh. cost. In, in fact, we're actually seeing a little bit of a reprieve on on uh, op- some operating costs. Um, you know, if we look mm-hmm. back to that that time frame, late June and into July, you know, as I mentioned, that was um, you know a real. Severe wake-up call for the industry, and and they, you know, took the steps to um, not just change, you know, their budgets in terms of, um, oh, you know, general administrative expenses or exploration, but they changed their mind plan to focus mm-hmm. on higher grades, to focus on uh, reducing sustaining capital, and that being uh, capital that's required to operate a mine over the long term, as opposed to just day to day. Yeah, but uh, and that 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 allows them some flexibility. The challenge with reducing sustaining capital or the long-term capital commitments is that um, in time, if you don't spend it, you're not going to be able to realize uh, that value. So right. they can cut corners to some extent today, but they're going to have to pay the piper in the future. Which um, we can go into that a little bit later. I think that sets up a very positive dynamic for gold prices. Um, mm-hmm. But but with regard to really the third quarter of this year, um, the net results from the third quarter were actually about 10% better than expected by the, the consensus estimates out there. Mm. And in looking at it further, we recognized several things. One was um, management acted very quickly to cut costs and change their mind plans. Uh, changing mind plans was very important to focus on those higher grades maybe stockpiled ores or what have you, where they could realize uh, benefits immediately. Um, but also, and I, I think this was a thing that maybe kind of escaped a number of generalists um, that, that have looked at the sector, but that is um, uh, currencies have, have come under pressure. The Canadian yeah. dollar, South American currencies have all been uh, under pressure uh, relative to the U.S. dollar, and that has meant that in local terms for some of these foreign operations, the operating costs are are lower mm-hmm. relative to where they were uh, several years ago. Yeah. You know, realize and recognize, of course, that um, these mining companies are selling their product in U.S. dollars, and so they're getting a relatively good price for their product while their operating costs are in local currencies, which have been uh, declining in value. So mm-hmm. there's been a margin expansion from that dynamic, which... Um, we saw, and we will see that again. I think even a little bit more pronounced in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Well, what to to what extent? I'm wondering. Uh, you mentioned sustaining capital, cutting back on that, but also you all, you mentioned that they're high grading or they're doing you know higher grades on average. It seems to me that would also hurt them in the future sometime. That that's going to be uh, a real a real challenge for them. Uh, and I think this is the dynamic that they're setting themselves up for that. Mm-hmm. And that is that, you know, at 1200, 1250, uh, gold price, they're basically have cut about as much as they can. I think mm-hmm. approximately 30% of the industry is unprofitable at, uh, prices below, uh, 1200. So if we get down to 13, or if we get down to, excuse me, 1150 or 1100, you know, that increases uh, in terms of those unprofitable uh, mines out there. You know, 50% of the industry is, is likely to be unprofitable at about yeah. 1,100 or so. So what do they do? They shut down their operation. And yeah. once you shut an operation down, you can't bring it back up very easily. And mm-hmm. in addition, 
they don't have the extra capital to expand their operation or look for new ores to replace that which they're mining. So the net effect of that is that they're digging into their resource and not replacing it. So two years from now, three years from now, after they've gone through and realized the easy ores or the high-grade ores or the most accessible ores, they're now going to have to spend either more money or not not provide supply to the marketplace. And Mm -hmm. that, I think, is the real important thing for investors uh, going through this difficult correction right now is that come 2016-17, the supply is not going to be available the way it was in 2012 and 13. And that should lead to higher prices um, uh, in the second half of the decade. And as you well know, I mean, it can take a number of years to bring on a mine. So it, it could be a longer a longer correction or a longer recovery than I think people maybe anticipate. Well, Doug, I'm sure then that's one of the things you're looking at when you're, uh, when you're allocating capital to different, uh, different mining uh, stocks that you buy for your, for your fund. Uh, I would like to, to get to some of the names in your fund before we run out of time. Uh, one that, that I, and as I look at your top 10 Holdings. You, you mentioned you have ten point eighty nine percent here. I'm seeing in the uh, physical gold, which is very high right. for you, I guess, by by normal standards, right? right? Well, it got to be a little bit higher back in two thousand eight. Uh, uh-huh. This time, back in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. when the overall market was correcting, I think we got up to about seventeen percent. But mm-hmm. um, that's right. We don't really trade around that position. It's a long term dedicated position in in bullion. Um, but yes, it is relatively high. I guess we'd rather see it more like five or seven percent, yeah, and, and have the other names in the portfolio uh, at a much higher level on a percentage basis. Well, I'm sure you'll get there. But I, I as I look at your top ten, most of them, every one of the names there are, are familiar to me. They're all household names except one, Tahoe Resources, which was your your tenth. Um, you know, right. from the top, with 3.67% at the point in time that this was reported on your website. Uh, tell us a little bit about Tahoe Resources. I believe they are a silver, a new silver mining company? That's right. They're, they are a new silver mining producer. Um, they've been building this mine over the last three years or so. Uh, Kevin MacArthur is uh, the CEO of the company. He was with uh, Gold Corp. Uh, up until his departure about three years ago, Gold Corp is still a major shareholder in the in the project and in the company, um, and he has done a real fantastic job of building this mine in, in Guatemala. Uh, Guatemala can be a challenging part of the world to work in from uh, social and logistical uh, perspectives. It, it's not a well developed economy, of course, and and um, and a mining project of this nature has has been a, a big deal for the com- uh, country. And um, they, they have been endowed with a very nice uh, resource, very, uh, very good grade um, uh, uh, ore deposit. And they have just gone into production um, this, this past uh, summer, uh, fall. And I, and I think that, um, you know, here's a well-managed, well-executed project. They um, were a little bit late in getting started in terms of uh, getting into production. Um, but I think the real noteworthy element here is that they brought this in basically on budget, which hmm. in this mining sector is a real achievement uh, given the last three or four years, where, as you know, I'm sure you've talked to your, your uh audience quite a bit about this, how a lot of these mining projects have been over over budget. So, um, you know, they, they've been able to do it. And I, I think um, the, the fact that Gold Corp has been, uh, you know, a major shareholder, I think, has given them the credibility. And certainly, oh. certainly management has done an excellent job, too. Okay. Okay, and I think I looked, I did a, sl- a quick bit of research, and I think I saw with the uh, credits from their, it's not just silver, but they have some other metals, maybe copper and something else there. Right, uh, a little gold, yep. Yeah, a little gold, and uh, that we're looking at a cash cost of something in the 5 to $6 range per ounce of silver, perhaps? Yep. yep. And somewhere in that range, so it's right. a low-cost right. producer. Twenty. I think they're looking to produce 20 million ounces a year or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So you know, about it should be a good uh, you know 150 plus million dollar cash flow generator. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and and uh, well, it's it's one I'm going to take a look at. The other names are very very familiar. Uh, one thing that struck me here, Doug, is I looked at your portfolio. You've got uh, 
two or three uh, royalty companies there, I guess three really, Silver Wheaton, uh, Royal Gold, and Franco Nevada, right? So you guys like the royalty companies, huh? Well, well, we do, and, and a little bit of their um, ranking in that top ten is, is somewhat a function of the fact that everything else is done so poorly, relatively yeah. speaking, so mm-hmm. that um, a couple of years ago they weren't in the top ten, but... Um, you know, because the market has recognized the uh, the merits of the royalty streaming company, um, they have tended to get a better valuation. They have tended to um, uh, do well, uh, relatively speaking, in in the sector. I, they don't have the same kind of risk. You know, the real punishment that miners took this year is was based on their capital spend, and Royal Gold and Franco Nevada, Silver Wheat, and certainly they spend capital to buy. Uh, royalty streams, but they aren't they aren't spending that capital necessarily to uh, build new projects for themselves. So yeah. um, they haven't had that kind of uh, oh I guess discipline from the market as it were on overspending or or ha- having a project come in over budget. So um, and they don't have that, to keep in, they don't have to keep putting in sustaining capital on an ongoing basis either, which is nice. Well, that's right. That's right. So once they've acquired a royalty or they've financed a stream, uh, that really should be it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. maybe payments over time for a stream, but um, certainly uh, the, the costs are up front and somewhat transparent. Uh, your number one, your, your number one pick, uh, or your, I shouldn't put it that way, your, your number one allocation at this point in time, Gold Corp. Uh, right. What do you like about Gold Corp? I mean, it's probably one of the best known names, but what do they have going for them? Selves. Well, you know, I think what's unique about, well, maybe not so unique about Gold Corp, but what is appealing about Gold Corp is that um, they seem to have all the attributes investors are looking for. Uh, they have a good resource base. They have um, uh, relatively low costs, reasonable costs at their mines. They have growth in front of them. And that's, I think, an important aspect that investors are looking for. Um, they want to see growth in terms of production from expanding resources. Um, they have some real good projects uh, that they're bringing on stream. Um, they have spent a lot of their capital. There's still some more capital to spend, but we're over the peak as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, from our perspective, um, here is a company that has a monthly dividend. And... Uh-huh. Um, they they um, are returning it to shareholders, and mm-hmm. you know they seem to have gotten the the formula correct, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's what you know appeals to us. It's been a long long term dominant position um, for us in the fund, and uh, the reason is because of all those those various at- attributes: low cost and uh, a good resource endowment and growth. Last time we talked, uh, Doug, you mentioned that Osisco Mining was uh, was a favorite, and I see it's still up there with 4.35% at, at this point in time allocation sure. to your fund. Uh, Osisco is this gigantic, relatively new story, but with uh, very low grades. Uh, do you still you still like it? Uh, we do. We do. Um, we think it's undervalued. We think that um, you know some of the challenges they have faced. Uh, with regard to the startup of their mine, are, re- are really behind them now. I mean, it's been al- almost over two years now since they uh, began operations there on a commercial basis. So they've gone through those teething problems that uh, so many others are experiencing. And, um, you know, the grade the grade is not uh, necessarily uh, an issue uh, for mm-hmm. us. Um, it seems to me to be pretty consistent. The recoveries are somewhat better than expected. Um, it, it was really the initial challenge was getting the throughput uh, in their mills. And we're going to see some real good cash flows coming from Osisco now that they've really spent the majority of their uh, capital on building the mine and getting it up and running and, and operating. So uh, we're quite enthused about that. In fact, we met with management this morning in our offices, mm. and what they told us and what I think we kind of embraced was the notion that uh, was the notion that uh, they are um, going to be just a boring company? They're just going to dig the hole and produce the gold, and um, we look forward to uh, them using that free cash flow to uh, uh, buy back stock or uh, issue dividends. 
Oh, well, it's, it certainly is a, an interesting time. I, I think, uh, is, uh, is it true uh, the darkness is before the dawn and is the darkness over now? Doug, are we, are we ready to well, see I some, good, some right. better darkness times? Is, I think darkness is before the storm, or the dawn rather. But I, I will say this, Jay, I think um, you know, we have to get through the end of the year. And mm-hmm. the reason I say the end of the year is because management teams will have to look at 2014. They're going to have to look at um, the gold price. Um, early next year and say, what do we value our reserves at? And I think a lot of companies uh, you may find are valuing their reserves at um, at a price higher than spot. And that might mean that there's some charges and um, uh, some write-offs that have to occur. I don't know if the market has fully embraced that yet, but I think mm-hmm. we're going to start to see that mm-hmm. um, in the first quarter. But that should somewhat clear the deck because I think um, management teams are going to try to really prove themselves um, um, by by you know demonstrating that their mine plan can make make money. In fact, it, you know it's it's really kind of interesting. Um, you know the mining stocks um, have somewhat forecasted gold prices lower up until the middle of this year, with a correction in mid late June. Um, and since then, the gold stocks have actually been forecasting higher prices. And it, mm-hmm. the, the analysis is one where if you look at the price of a, a gold stock, it, it could be said to be the cumulative cash flow uh, from, from the production of gold from its mines. Mm-hmm. And that, that would have to be based on some type of gold price. Um, since the middle of June, those gold stocks have been forecasting higher gold prices than, than current spots. So well, I think that's, that's really encouraging that the market is looking forward and saying uh, we're going into an environment of, of better pricing as opposed to weaker pricing. Well, hooray for that. I, thank yeah. you. Uh, we'll have to end it on that, on that positive note, Doug, because we are uh, more than out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with me once again. We'll look uh, forward to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Great, Jay. Look forward to it. So, thank you very have much. Have a good well, holiday folks, season. And you too. Folks, don't go away because coming up next is a most inspirational uh, guest, one of the most inspirational guests I've ever had. David Hunt uh, is going to be with us. He hasn't let a little thing like blindness deter him from using his talents as a winemaker and musician to turn hard times into good times. So don't go away. I'll be right back with David Hunt. David Hunt. 